Welcome to the Review Named Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. It's another happy hour installment of the podcast here on the show this week. With me tonight, I have Chris. Hello. Sam. Hello. And Ashley. Hello. And we'll be joined a little later in the show with Darren when we talk about music. This week for the Happy Hour podcast, what we're going to do is something, as usual, we're going to be a little bit looser, a little bit more discursive. And this week we're going to talk about our favorite things of 2013 so far. We're at about the halfway point of the year. Uh, It seems like a good time to take measure of what we've seen so far and some of the best, some of the worst, and anything else in between that sort of fits our fancy as we discuss 2013 and its first six months. Um, So I think we're going to kick off by talking a little bit about our favorite television of 2013 so far. Um, And why don't I start with you, Sam, and what's been some of your favorite TV of 2013 this year so far? Um, Well, this year, you know, I've I've had a nice mix of seeing old shows that I had to catch up on for the first time. So this year I watched The Sopranos with Ashley for the first time, which was definitely a great experience. Monumental television right there. Yeah. Nay, the greatest show we've ever seen. Yeah, probably, yeah. Probably the greatest Um, show I've ever seen. um, We caught up on uh, House of Cards. Um, But if I had to pick one show that I feel like has been 2013 in my mind that will stick out as the show of 2013 so far for me, it's Hannibal. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I was going to come up fairly early in the segment, and I, I, I have to say, when I think 2013 TV, at least at this point, that's definitely the show. Um, because, you know, there, a lot of my kind of standby shows, Parks and Rec, um, Community, Doctor Who, they were all back this year with varying degrees of quality. Um, I had some problems with Doctor Who this season. It was kind of up and down. Um, Parks and Rec is still good, even though I think it's probably it's probably best episodes are behind it. And Community obviously just wasn't the show that it really is. So Hannibal kind of had the advantage of being um, a new show, and it wasn't only new, but to me, it wasn't that anticipated about how good it was. It was it was a surprise for me, at least, about what a quality show it was. And um, I guess it just wrapped up last week. Yes, and I have uh, not seen season. the last couple episodes yet, so let's not spoil the end of the season, no, especially worry. because we're not in spoiler territory <laughs> at this point. But um... Will, Will kills Hannibal. No! Sorry. Oops. Season two is just going to be uh, Will just kind of hanging out. Um, Hannibal's like, I eat people. Oops. But uh, the show, I think really the main three, it's Mads Mikkelsen, Hugh Dancy, and Lawrence Fishburne are all so great on that show. They're, they've been really amazing. Um, and it's kind of made me slightly obsessed with Mads Mikkelsen, and I kind of want to see everything he does now. I want to rewatch Casino Royale. I watched Valhalla Rising. Um, which yeah, I really need to see that. Um, he has a new movie coming out that I guess is in. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Norway. Whatever he is, it's coming out, and he plays, I think, a man accused of kidnapping or molesting a child, but he didn't do it. Um, <laughs> Though he certainly has the face for it. <laughs> he definitely, he definitely has. He has a very interesting face and. You know, he could have just been a guy that has like a weird, interesting looking face and kind of coasted on that. But he's he's really a fucking fantastic actor. And he's 
he's made the role of Hannibal completely his own. Um, he's not doing Anthony Hopkins at all. And I think it's kind of like a beautiful show and it's super violent, but it's not, or I guess it is gratuitous, or I guess it's not really gratuitous. Well, I think I the, the artistry of it kind of takes away from the feeling that it's gratuitous. Right. If it weren't so artistically done. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they're not doing it just for gore's sake. I mean, they I, obviously, you know, Brian Fuller realizes that if you're going to do a Hannibal show, it has to have a lot of violence and it has to have gore, but it, it all feels earned. It's, it's not cheap. It's, it doesn't feel uh, exploitative. It all seems to serve the story and that they were able to kind of, um, you know, make something like Will, you know, Sully goes a little crazy over the season. And in addition to Hugh Dancy's performance, they were able to kind of convey that visually um, in, an, in an interesting way that, uh, that I thought was really satisfying. And Mads Mikkelsen, I think, should be nominated for an Emmy. I think he should probably win an Emmy. Um, Honestly, he's my new favorite person. Lead men, uh, well, you know, I guess Hugh Dancy being the lead, uh, Mads Mikkelsen and Lawrence Fishburne being supporting. I think any of the three of them could win. I honestly, Gina Torres, I think would be a, a guest actress, not a supporting actress. Though I would love to see her win for her portrayal of her real life husband's wife. She plays Lawrence Fishburne's wife on the show, and she was incredible. And I think she was only is she married to Lawrence Fishburne. She is married to Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne. Wow, I, I had that. no idea. Yeah, I did not know that. Hmm. They were they are married. They played a. How long have they been married? Um, years. I think like late nineties, something like that. I mean. So is the porn daughter? Is that her daughter too? No. That's his daughter from a first marriage, I think. Uh, I Really, I, I don't know that much about Lawrence Fishburne, so if I'm getting any of this wrong, I apologize. I know, but you know everything about the porn daughter. I do, so. yes. We are going to get three times as many angry layers as we usually do. <laughs> One guy is like, no, that was not correct. They've been dating since 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guy who wrote that letter for doing a bad inter- imitation of your voice. <laughs> Seriously, though, what happened with Lawrence Fishburne's wife's cancer storyline? Did they just drop it? I don't think it's dropped. Well, we can't spoil anything for Jordan. Um, I imagine that she will be back in future seasons, but I think like what they did, what they needed for her to do this season was was sort of be like the lingering threat of death and the death, like death's slow progression. And I think they kind of got that message across um, and then moved to deal with other things for the moment. But I, I imagine she's not just going to disappear from the show. Uh, when you have an actress of Gina Torres's caliber, uh, when she's, clearly invested in the show and married to one of its stars. Um, and when the storyline is clearly not wrapped up to my mind, I imagine she'll be back. And I would love to see her back as a regular uh, for as long as they decide to keep the character around. Well, we will see. And thankfully Hannibal got picked up and without spoiling anything about what happens in the finale, you definitely, you're definitely happy that the show gets picked up for a second season. Cause I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything saying the finale of season one of Hannibal does not work really as a series finale. Yeah, I have already heard that like it would have been an incredibly frustrating series finale. But frankly, if this show had been canceled, like regardless of how great the final episode would have been, it would have been crushing to me because this is like this is immediately becoming one of my favorite shows on television. Um, I mean, even from its first episode. And I think, as you said, Sam, this is a show that when I heard they were doing a Hannibal TV show, I kind of rolled my eyes and thought, thought, well, I'll ignore that. Um, and then when I heard, well, they've re- they've rebooted so many shows. You know, they they did a new Night Rider. Right. They did uh, they, you know, Hawaii Five O. They just they always do these 
uh, reboots. And in almost anyone else's hands, I think this would have been as terrible a show as I was thinking. I don't think this is a very easy thing to pull off, and especially not with the majesty that Brian Fuller has. When I heard it was his, I knew I was going to have to watch it. Um, and then when Advanced Review started coming out, they were way more uh, positive than I expected. And I've just... I mean, I think the pilot was probably the best pilot I've seen all year, um, and the show really hasn't gone downhill since. I think... I mean, this will be a show, I imagine, that will be very, very high on my top top ten list come the end of the season. Um, Ash, any other thoughts on Hannibal? Um, no, you know, I don't really have anything to add. It's been, it's been a pretty awesome, awesome first season. Um, though I, I don't know if anyone else shares this experience, but personally, I find all of the food scenes to be the most disturbing. Maybe only because I know that they're, they're people parts. Well, I think, but but I think they're supposed to be kind of disturbing or they're kind of like in between because the show hired, uh, Jose Andres to be like the food guy and he kind of like designs all these really intricate dishes. There's like a, there's like a, a duality to it and that all this stuff looks really, really good, but that, you know, that it's all people parts. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, Ugh. that's the thing though. Like there's something about the way it's filmed that it doesn't look appetizing to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe because the rest of the set is so cold. Like there's no like warmth in that food. No. It's yeah. Very, it's, like, always, it's always sterile. shot. Very. Yeah. A very gray blue light. It looks, it, it does always look very cold. Although I think sometimes it looks very sumptuous as well. And that's to me what creeps me out is when you're like, that looks really good. And you're like, it's probably people. Yeah. <laughs> probably. I mean, I always, uh, I've been watching the show again with my parents and that's why I haven't finished it yet. Cause I'm waiting for them to catch up before I do the final push. Um, and every time he serves something, it's like, that's people. And I'm like, it's probably not people every time he serves something. Cause he doesn't kill like hundreds and hundreds of people, but a lot of the time, it's people. So to me, there's an added dimension, and maybe I'm alone in this because I think even Brian Fuller said that he he assumes it's always people. Uh, but to me, it's like maybe it's people, maybe it's not, and that adds another layer to it. Because mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes doesn't he make fish, and it's kind of hard to fake fish. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, and like sometimes I think like that's a liver. It's probably a human liver. And sometimes I think, well, maybe it's just a chicken cutlet. Like I don't know. Um, I imagine he can't, like, you know, he's not killing hundreds and hundreds of people, so not every meal that he cooks for people is probably... No, I mean, imagine how much meat, you know, you can get off a person. Well, and I know, like, whenever he does the dinner parties, the show's made very clear his dinner parties are always people. <laughs> yes. But uh, he, seems to have, he seems to have quite a bit frozen and available. To yeah, have. but he also, you know, he's, he's, he's a super talented uh, cook, so, I mean, he's cooking... You know, he really uses every part. Yeah. Yeah, but, the, like, the freezer burn on people, like, after a while. Yeah, yeah you Christmas. can't keep them in there forever. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be unappetizing after enough time in there. I'm sure Hannibal is very good about ramping his his products well. Um, yep. He uses, glad, he uses the Glad family of bags. <laughs> keep away freezer burn. Yeah, no freezer burn on any of his people. Unfortunately, it all goes onto the ice cream as a result. My one other comment about the show in general is that I hope I hope the female characters improve because right now I feel like they're yeah. all very they they very much exist to serve the purpose of storylines that have already been established for the male characters. And I know that like Brian Fuller's long-term plan is to basically tell the entire Hannibal story including the Silence of the Lambs era, right. 
So there could be an awesome interpretation of Clarice Starling, which I would be excited to see. I would be excited for that too, but I feel like that's a long way off. It away. is a long way off. Um, yeah. I feel like that's kind of like looming. I think just anyone who's familiar with the series at all, it's kind of in the back of their head that there's going to be this this great female character. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. The female characters on the show are all kind of well, they're all, like, they're all they're kind like, of tertiary, but uh, I think uh, the Jillian Anderson character is mm-hmm. interesting, though she doesn't get a ton of screen time. Yeah. Um, I think I, she's really interesting. Uh, the the one uh, coroner mm-hmm. lady's kind of two-dimensional, I think. Yeah, she's very two-dimensional. I think Alana Bloom is, is an interesting character. They just haven't given her a whole lot to do yet except stand around and be either interested in will or hannibal and have weird tension with both of them i think she's well performed i think the character has potential like they just her. haven't done much with her yet i really find her uninteresting i'm not a huge fan of that actress and I th- it's almost like they just they needed there to be some kind of love interest well and i also think that there's some difficulty uh because two of the big female characters alana and freddie Lowndes, are both men in the books so i think that mm-hmm. there's probably uh and fuller's hewing fairly close to a lot of th- things so I imagine maybe he's just having difficulty figuring out how to make them interesting and compelling female yeah. characters. And, and also both Freddy, of them very small characters in the books, as I recall. Yeah, Freddie, I mean, I've talked to Ashley about this while watching. I'm like, if Freddie just went away forever, I mean, they can send her to Mandyville. I don't think that'll happen, but I would I don't mind. think it'll happen. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't mind if she got sent to Mandyville. Just because, you know, maybe in the first maybe two episodes of the show, her her blogging or whatever was some sort of problem, but by halfway through the season, it was just totally inconsequential in terms of the stakes uh, that that were raised uh, that season. She was just kind of there, yeah, and kind of kind of a a pest, and not a very interesting one. Uh, Chris, thoughts on Hannibal? I am woefully behind on it. I loved everything I've seen so far, and it is my biggest regret of my TV season for 2013 that I fell so far behind on it. So hoping to catch up very soon. Uh, yeah, I have, I think, three episodes left, so I feel the same way. And I, as soon as this podcast is over, I may go and, and watch at least one of them because, yeah, I, I, I want to get through it. I've loved everything I've seen. Uh, I'm much more behind on, than that. Before but I've on, got a whole bunch of my DVR, so... <laughs> Before we move on, I'll just say, I think this has been said before, so I don't want to spend much time on it, um, but I just, I feel like this show uh, is, in a sense, a uh, serial killer procedural, like about 30 other shows you've seen in the last decade, and yet, unlike any of them, it has, A, like, such well-realized, well-developed characters, but B, such a sense of, like, the actual loss that is that is happening in every episode. It really makes you feel the deaths and their effect on the people who are still alive. And that's like, that's something I think the genre has missed for a long time. And that's what I think gives Hannibal the stakes, both emotional and uh, suspense wise that it has. Um, so that's one of my favorite things about the show. Uh, with that, we should probably move on. Ash, why don't we turn to you and you can talk about one of your favorite shows of 2013 so far. You know, I think even though it's probably kind of goes without saying at this point, I've really enjoyed and been impressed by Mad Men this year no way you like mad men yeah i know it's pretty crazy right <laughs> mad men's kind of i think i've talked about this with jordan before on the podcast but mad men at this point it's just kind of like predictably great mm-hmm. and it's i feel i feel like it, it's almost like it's it's been just so great it just goes without saying and we kind of watch it and go like yep that was a really great episode it just always yeah, is so- 
Sometimes it's hard to forget how great a performer it really is when just week in, week out, it is just so dependable. It is just so consistently great. That's just, it almost becomes sort of a quiet workhorse for just how wonderfully consistent and wonderfully entertaining it is week after week. Um, but I'm glad you brought it up, Ash, because it did air its season finale last night. Uh, and so it's now is a good uh, a good time to talk at least briefly. And again, I think we'll keep spoiler free for the moment, although we might drift into spoilers. Um, just talk for a moment about season six of the show. So what were the things you loved about it this year? Well, I thought that um, it's been interesting to see Don continue to kind of circle the drain, <laughs> be that, you know, in, in terms of... Um, trying to answer the question of whether or not he's going to survive the series. Um, you know, his sanity and his addiction have kind of come into question more consistently this season than in others. Um, I thought the show did some really interesting things, um, by combining the two agencies. Um, certainly Peggy and Ted's relationship was an interesting dynamic to observe as it unfolded. Um, and I was kind of happy to see more Betty this season. Um, she'd kind of fallen by the wayside in the previous one. And as much as I think January Jones is a terrible actress, um, she's used well as Betty. Um, one of my favorite episodes this season um, was the kind of bizarre reunion between um, mm-hmm. Don and Betty while um, at the, uh, the summer camp visit. But yeah, I mean, overall, it's been it's been really solid, and it's it's been fun reading all of the online speculation that this season generated as well. Yeah, there's just most I of mean, it I, completely I, insane, but all of it interesting. Yeah, yeah, some of it is uh, is a little crazy pants, but it's all interesting. I think yeah, I think this season definitely gave us. I guess I don't want to get too spoilery on it, but um, the introduction of Bob Benson um, and his character and kind of trying to figure out what his deal is. And um, I think, I I feel like, uh, I guess ever since, you know, ever since this show is, I guess it started out kind of cultish. I mean, I guess technically it probably still is kind of cultish in the grand scheme of television. Yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, more and more everything is cultish. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I I feel like, I, I guess the show has become more part of the zeitgeist. It's 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 great to read. There's just more and more and more speculation about the show and more being written about the show, which I think is really exciting. And I think and it's always fun to read about. It's a fun I, show to read about afterward. Absolutely. I, I read. I mean, I read. I think three or four reviews in addition to writing my own um, in any given week. Um, and I found actually some really interesting different takes this year. I think uh, when when there was the whole. I don't think this is a spoiler because it has nothing to do with anything that happens in the actual show. Um, when there was the whole like. Megan as Sharon Tate thing going on. Uh, I discovered a, a blog that does like Mad Men fashion commentary every week and talks about like the symbolism in their costuming. And I think like a lot of it is a bit of a stretch, but it's one of those things like when we talked about Room 237 a couple uh, podcasts ago, Sam, it's one of those things where it's like people getting really in depth about things that I hadn't thought about and making me think about the show in a new and interesting way, which was great. Yeah, I feel like that, that blog, um, that was kind of one of the stories that really made the rounds. And I feel like, you know, Mad Men's the type of show that allows for these type of, you know, really interesting out of left field takes on the show. It allows for that, which is really great to see. Um, 
you know, even a show, you know, you talk about Breaking Bad. I don't think Breaking Bad even, you know, elicits, you know, gets this level of uh, speculation and, um, I think, you know, crazy theories. It's just, it's a different type of show. And I think Mad Men kind of uh, sets itself itself up more for that. I think Matt Weiner is more interested in those and kind of layering it on top of layers, on top of layers. And, you know, I, I don't think Mad Men is necessarily the most subtle show with some of these um, these things, but it, it, it definitely invites that sort of criticism. Well, I think Mad Men is a show, A, it's willing to go in for surrealism, uh, which in that and many, many other ways, as it gets on in years, it's a spiritual successor to The Sopranos, where Matt Weiner used to work. Um, it's, good, it's good for the surrealism. It's also willing to do a lot of symbolism, um, and sometimes sometimes be very very obvious about it. Sometimes be I think incredibly subtle in what in what it's doing. Um, and I think with with the the two forms of symbolism and often layering on layering, like you said, and with its willingness to go surreal, a lot of people are willing to take the show in different ways and look at it from different perspectives and think like, well, anything can happen on this show. Um, in a way that I think I think anything can happen on Breaking Bad. But anything that can happen on Breaking Bad is, is going to happen in real life. And while Mad Men has never broken that wall, I think the way that it presents itself leads people to think that it might someday. Wouldn't it be great if it if just at the end of Mad Men, Don just flies away? <laughs> Wings sprout from his back, and he's like, later, 70s. And then he just ascends. He just looks like a, a Led Zeppelin cover, and he flies off. Yes. <laughs> Heaven is real, and Don goes there. Yeah, that, I mean that would that would be an excellent bookend to the uh, Dante's Inferno quote that opened season six. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, Madman thoughts? Uh, I thought it was a very interesting season. Um, I especially I will agree with Ashley about what was happening with uh, Betty this season, in that I think this is the most I've cared about Betty since season one. So I found myself genuinely surprised to actually. Uh, enjoy Betty subplots and maybe even look forward to them when they popped up this season, which is something that's never happened to me before when I was watching <laughs> Mad Men. So that was good. Um, I'm a huge fan of the character Sally Draper, so I, I always like when they kind of push her and Don's relationship to the forefront because, for me, it's one of the most interesting relationships on the show, and it's one of the still... It's one of the relationships that can still give me an emotional gut punch in a way that I'm maybe a little bit more jaded with some of the other character relationships on the show. Like I've gotten to a point where I know like that certain characters are going to do horrible things to each other and are going to make choices that are going to affect each other in horrible ways. But whenever Don disappoints Sally, it still really just gets to me. Um, So I especially enjoyed all the episodes that were Sally centric this season. Um, Poor Ken Cosgrove. I will say that. Yeah. Um, well, poor a lot of people, but it's, yeah. Uh, but Ken Cosgrove definitely got it bad for for at least an episode or two there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got the old Dick Cheney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, but um, I I think one of the things that really impressed me about the season the most though was, and Mad Men has always been good about this, but. Uh, the amount of characters, uh, new characters that were added this season in a very seamless fashion really impressed me. When you folded the whole second agency in and the number of partners doubled, the number of people at the agency just increased. Uh, I thought the show did a really good job at juggling that, about working these new characters in and making them, putting them on 
as close to an equal footing as the old favorites as I think the show could do. So I think, again, just another great season from Mad Men. Um, and really one of the few shows I think can add characters with that level of skill where, cause usually there's always that like blowback to when new characters are being added in, taking screen time from your favorites for most shows. But I think with Mad Men, they've never really had that problem. And again, this is just more evidence of that, that they are always really good at doing that. Yeah. I no think that's right. Added. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, It'd be great if they added Piz this season. If it was just Piz, like the exact, exact <laughs> character. Piz is from the new agency, and he's like, "Hey, I'm Piz. Yeah. I'm like, Piz My friends call me Piz." So something we didn't really talk about was uh, a character who became a focus of the season in a big way right from the get-go was a uh, Bob Benson, which uh, I think had a he had a that was a character that had a pretty interesting arc this season. An interesting arc and an arc that I think the show developed enough um, and. Again, I don't want to spoil anything, but it, they gave they developed enough and they gave enough answers as to the questions people were asking, um, but also left a whole lot out there. Should they choose to develop more, or should they choose to leave it alone forever? <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the things I really like about the character of Bob Benson was at the beginning of the season, I really could not care less about this character, but by the end, he was one of someone I was just like very intrigued with, really wanting to learn more about, and always very interested when a Bob-centric subplot would pop up here and there. So, I, again, I just think that one of the strengths of Mad Men is world-building in adding characters late in the game and folding them into this already existing world and doing so with as little friction as possible. I think that's a real skill for a show, especially when as long-lived as Mad Men. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to talk about Mad Men for the rest of the show. We really got to keep moving, though. And, Chris, while we're on you, why don't we move to one of your favorite shows of the year so far? We, Chris? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I my audio dropped off from that. Oh, that's fine. Uh, why don't we move to you and talk about one of your favorite shows of the year so far? Um, so I'm really torn because I have two shows that I would like to bring up right now. Um, I, I will mention both of them at the top of this segment, but I will only talk in depth about one. Okay. Um, I I would like to. I, I think my favorite shows of this past so far for the year. Uh, other than the ones we've mentioned so far, would have to be uh, Justified on the drama side and Happy Endings on the comedy side. Both and, excellent choices. Well, I would love to talk about both of them, especially Justified, because I think that they had their best season to date. In season I agree, four. actually. And the show kind of, it, yeah, I, I think the show finally reached uh, something that they had been building to for a while. And finally, be, like it, it was great uh, for the three seasons that preceded this one. But I think the show finally became something I always hoped that it would be and something I always hoped to see on television and really reached a lot of potential that I was working towards for a while. So I, I would love to talk about Justified, but due to the fact that I don't think we will ever see it again, I have to talk about happy endings right now. Yeah, that makes um, sense to me. So uh, as some of our viewers may know, uh, Happy Endings was uh, canceled by ABC following a very ill-conceived and in poor taste campaign where the gist was they ran ads saying, save Happy Endings, save them from ABC, because you're at fault here for the show you love being canceled. Um, but uh, 
I, I thought this was one of the strongest seasons of happy endings we've had so far. And compared to season two, that's high praise indeed, because both season two and season three were, it, it's hard to find a weak episode in those seasons because when that show is on, it is on. It is the hangout comedy that can really do anything. It, the ensemble works together so well that you can kind of, there are certain characters you can throw any subplot at, no matter how thin or ridiculous it might be. And their chemistry will just make it work. will just sell jokes that any lesser show would just struggle. It would be a D plot in any show that wasn't happy endings. I think the one that springs to mind instantly is when, um, uh, Max and Penny were drinking the cough syrup to, um, avoid texting their significant others to like regain the power in the relationship. I mean, it was literally just a subplot about two people drinking cough medicine and to pass out. Yeah. It was a giant and, requiem for a dream parody that actually managed to become a storyline. <laughs> yes. And it was really good. It was really funny. And I think this show does that better than most shows is really take any kind of concept and just run with it and make it really, really funny, really entertaining and just be able to just go into territory that you at first think, I don't think they can do this. And by the end of the episode, just prove you dead wrong. And this show really can do anything comedy wise. You know, uh, Oh, go ahead. No, no, please go. What were you saying? Say you, you call it a hangout comedy and I think that's completely dead on, but um, I wanted to highlight what I think is unique about happy endings on television or was since I think you're right. I don't think we will ever see the show again. It looks like a reprieve is unlikely. Um, This was was the best screwball comedy I've maybe ever seen on TV. I mean, it it had such a rapid fire energy to it and it had such weird and frenetic chemistry between all the performers and between the storylines and between the jokes um, that it was able to pull off that, that rat-a-tat dialogue, like almost nothing else I've seen maybe ever on TV, it was able to pull off romantic pairings that I uh, was not interested in at all at the beginning of the series and make them something that I was really invested in by the time we got to the end of season three. And Are you talking like, about Alex and Dave? Yeah, Alex and Dave. Yeah. They were characters who were sinking the show and were the show's like boring straight people at the beginning. And the show eventually figured out that make them dumb and they become hysterical. And there's a montage, and I think it was, yeah, it was a season finale uh, this season, in which Alex and Dave locked themselves in progressively smaller rooms in their apartments. <laughs> yeah. It was one of the funniest things I've seen on TV this year. <laughs> Up to also, them, like, yeah. some, like, how did we get ourselves locked in the shower? It was just like... They, it, they're relate like, I, I will completely agree with you, but at the beginning, they were one of the most annoying parts of that show, but by the end... Be, their relationship became one of my favorite parts of that show. And the moment I'll mention is I, I forget what episode it was, but when they were trying to put spark back in their relationship and Alex was trying to do like the sexy painting thing yes. in the apartment, it just went terribly. Like she actually, she started like flicking paint in Dave's eyes <laughs> and they locked there. The apartment started filling up with fumes. It's their relationship was just a comedy gold mine by the end. And I mean, Elijah Cuthbert especially uh, became sort of the show's MVP, which is like she was the weak link of the show by a long stretch when it started out. Um, yes. And she she became I mean, I don't know if you can ever top Casey Wilson and Eliza Coop, the other two uh, female performers on the show who were just like comedic geniuses in my mind. But from from being a weak link on the show, she really became one of the strongest players in the ensemble. Oh, absolutely. Like by the end, everybody was more than pulling their weight in every episode. And the thing that really kills me about it ending with season three is the only thing that I thought was missing from the show 
in the previous seasons was starting to be rectified in season three, where they were starting to finally build like beyond the core cast, which was phenomenal. And you could really just be insular with this core cast and the show could work. But in season three, they started building out this like repertoire of um, tertiary characters that would kind of flow in and out of the show as time went on. And I think uh, you were finally getting a very entertaining stable of these characters that were coming and going uh, that was really the only thing I thought was missing from the show. I mean, this show got on such a roll, really, I think, right at the beginning of the year, actually. Uh, I mean, season three was fantastic all the way through. But when they started doing the horrible, horribly conceived for a show that you don't want to be canceled, um, back-to-back episode run, uh, yeah. there were there were two great episodes every week. And it was on such a roll that it was like almost two classic episodes a week that, that we were getting uh, for two or three weeks there. It was like five or six episodes in a row that were just like, this is one of the best ha- episodes of the show I've ever seen again and again and again. I, I go back often and try and think of for the year end list of what episode I would nominate for it. And I have like three or four. I bounce. I have, I yeah, I have like four episodes of happy do. endings on my list. That yeah. is not all that long. Otherwise, I think it's the only show that has multiple nominees at this point in the year. Although I haven't done uh, several that just ended yet. Um, but yeah, it it had an incredible season. If you guys, and I know Sam and Ashley, you don't watch it. Um, no. Even though that it will probably never see the light of day again, um, go check it out because it's a it's a great great sitcom. And Chris hounded me and hounded me that I, because I hadn't watched it, and I finally did, and he was so right. Um, and it's it's a really great show that I will be very very sad to lose. Is yeah. it uh, is it on Netflix? No, uh, no, I don't think it is. Uh, you, you might be able to order the disc. There's not an instant streaming. Yeah, I'm sure they have the disc, but it's not instant. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll never see it. <laughs> I guess not. If only there was ordering the disc. The the last thing I want to say is just like I, I think we we all watch a lot of great comedies. Uh, but between like the four of us, there's like a whole range of stuff that we all watch. But I I, I think that at least from what I've been watching this season, happy endings was definitely the most consistent of the comedies I was watching. I think some of my standbys, well, parks and rec kind of had its up and downs this season. Community had a lot of downs this season, (laughs) (laughs) but happy endings week after week. I mean, even their weakest episodes this season were still very, very entertaining. So I, I will definitely credit happy endings for me for being my most consistent comedy of 2013 so far. I'll agree with you. Um, I was going to talk about a show, but I think we, we probably need to move on from TV pretty quickly here. So I will just be very brief and say uh, another one of my favorite shows of the year and a show that I don't think anyone else on the podcast currently watches, Enlightened, um, which was also unfortunately canceled this year. But the show had two seasons. Both of them were pretty incredible. I think season two is when it really found itself and it became uh, as uh, – a term I've been throwing around a lot on this uh, segment, one of the best things on TV, um, period. Laura Dern, who is uh, a phenomenal and phenomenally underrated actress, it just kills the show every week, uh, playing a character who is incredibly difficult. Um, just She's a difficult character, but also it's difficult to pull off a character who has the emotional swings that she has and who is as self-serving and uh, self-righteous and yet seeing, sees herself as as selfless as she is um, and make her sympathetic and make her fully realized and make her someone you want to root for even as you roll your eyes. Um, she was incredible. Mike White, her co-creator on the show, uh, great director, great writer, also a uh, great actor on the show this season. Um, you had great supporting turns from Luke Wilson and Molly Shannon. This was a show that... Uh, oh, also, I should mention Dermot Rooney, I guess, who was also very good. Um, this was a show that was 
very, very, very good in its first season, and one of my favorite shows of uh, 2012 last year, and just got even better. Um, when when Year Endless come, this is another one that will be near the top of my list. So if you haven't watched Enlightened, do yourself the favor. Though it uh, is canceled, the two seasons function well as a complete story, and it is one of the most unique and satisfying things that you will see on TV now or in a very long time. So check it out. Um, with that, anyone else want to do quick plugs for shows we didn't get a chance to talk more at length about? Bob's Burgers. Yeah. I love Bob's Burgers. Bob's Burgers, I think, is one of my favorite comedies on TV. And I think, I mean, I don't watch Happy Endings. I think it would have been the most consistent comedy for me this year. Yeah, absolutely. Every week it really made me laugh. It makes me happy. Excellent. That's a show Watch that I Burgers. To on, so I will have to. Yeah, the, I gotta catch up on that one too. The original songs that are composed for Bob's Burgers are choice. Yeah, they do. Highly recommended. They do great jobs. Once again, showing how does Glee, how could Glee not be able to like produce an original song like one an episode? Ugh. Bob's Burgers does it. Phineas and Ferb does it every episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, Phineas and they're Ferb. Not, they're not great writers. Phineas no. and Ferb is a great, great show. Not that I haven't um, seen anything new that, that it's produced, if it even has, but it's a great show. Um, but Bob's Burgers, check it out. It has, they they have every funny person, every funny comedy person has shown up on that show at some point. And if they haven't yet, they will eventually, I'm sure. Or I'm they're sure. not funny. Or they're not funny. <laughs> never were, never will be. That's right. Noted. Um, all right. Good. I would love to. I, I have more shows we talk about. I'm sure you all do as well. We watch a lot of TV around here. But we got to move on to movies now. So good TV talk, folks. Um, Going to move on to the movie segment. And Sam, we, we started with you in TV. Why don't we start with you again? Because this cycle seems to be working for me. Yeah, okay. It's working for me too, Jordan. I like to be first. <laughs> because then no one can take away, uh, they can steal my thunder. Um, so I, I was thinking about... Uh, what my favorite movies so far this year have been. And I feel like a lot of the more critically praised movies, I just haven't gotten around to seeing Uh, movies that I've wanted to see, but haven't seen Uh, upstream color. I haven't seen mud. Um, A lot of these kind of more indie movies that, that, you know, that that are small. (laughs) Yeah. That that come well, that come out earlier in the year. Um, I haven't gotten a chance uh, to go see, but, um, a couple movies, uh, I've been kind of disappointed by, uh, the summer fair and I haven't been, you know, super overwhelmed by this year so far, but then again, you know, it's the first half of the year. The, the real, the real money stuff comes later. Yeah. Um, it's far too early to call yeah. this year, obviously. Sure. Um, Movies I've really enjoyed this year. Um, Francis Ha, I think, is an early contender to make my top ten list. It was a movie I was kind of ready to hate, but I seemed to it seemed to grow on me kind of as the movie went on. And you know, a twenty-something dancer who's trying to find her place in New York City kind of sounded like something that would make my eyes roll out of my head <laughs> um, going to see it. But I. Uh, you know, I like Noah. I like Noah Baumbach. Um, I like Greta Gerwig. They, they're still great, and they really won me over with this movie that I really didn't think I was going to like, and they really uh, convinced me. And 
Ashley and I, we just saw This is the End, which I thought was fucking hilarious. Those guys deserve a ton of credit. It's like a, it's a super goofy movie, um, but it made me ra- laugh pretty much beginning and, to end. And it was a fascinating exercise in metafiction. I mean, there's yeah, so, so, many, so many layers. Of- it's a great, it, it's a great, uh, you know, meta movie, and it's great how it uh, examines um, celebrity and stardom, and how these guys are kind of playing um, versions of themselves to varying degrees, and they're able to make fun of themselves, and it's all very endearing and very hilarious and absurd. And I think this is the end is also one of my favorite movies I've seen this year. Um, I can say I had a great time watching it just Excellent. a couple hours ago. Oh, fantastic. Perfect. Uh, good timing on the podcast then. Yeah. Um, Ashley, some of your favorites from the year so far? You know, there haven't been too many movies that I've seen this year that I felt truly blown away by. Um, I agree with Francis Ha. That was one of my favorites. Um, in terms of movies that um, that I, I've remembered and that I've returned to, um, even if I can't say that I completely love them, um, I found The Great Gatsby to be kind of fascinating in that I can't decide whether or not I think it was a failure. Um, I'm I'll help. About... I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's and that's fine. Um, but you know me, Buzz Lerman, so I'm by no means the the authority on uh, whether it was a great or not Buzz Lerman film. Yeah, and you know I'm I go back and forth about. Leonardo DiCaprio is an actor too. So being that I'm ambivalent about Baz Luhrmann and ambivalent about Leonardo DiCaprio, I, you know, kind of come up empty on that movie. Um, but I was interested in the attempt that it made. Um, I thought that there were elements of it that were extremely well done and others that were quite poor. Um, but yeah, I, I found that one interesting. Um, my other favorite was actually not in theaters, but behind the candelabra, uh, Steven Soderbergh's latest on HBO was surprisingly good. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't think it was going to be total crap just on the basis of it being a Steven Soderbergh picture. And he's right. usually pretty, pretty reliable as a director. Um, but I thought it was kind of fascinating in its ability to toe the line between being a straightforward biopic and being like pure camp. Um, and there certainly were extremely campy elements to it. Um, everyone talked about Rob Lowe's performance yeah. as the standout of the film. Um, and yet it never went, it never went full camp. And there's a part of me that kind of wishes that it did because the source material is so outlandish. Um, but I think his his decision to kind of stick to the more um, traditional biopic conventions worked as well. Um, I think, you know, Matt Damon's character, Scott, was incredibly sympathetic. Um, we were all kind of captivated by his ongoing um, relationship with Liberace, even as it became kind of abusive and parasitic. Um yeah, that was that was easily, I think, my my favorite movie that I've seen this year, and it happened to be on the small screen. On the HBO, you know, it's not television, Ashley. No, I don't. It's, it's HBO. HBO. 
Uh, it's its own thing, actually. It's not television. It's not movies. I don't even know. It's it's HBO. Um, excellent. Cool. Uh, great choices on on uh, for both. Uh, let's move on. Chris, some of your favorites of the year so far. Um, I also have not really made it out to see everything I've wanted to see so far. So my selection is kind of limited to begin with. Um, a few standouts for me, I will say, uh, I will start with, I think early, the one that, uh, came out earliest in the year, which was side effects, the Steven Seiberg, uh, theatrical release, which I thought was just a very tight thriller. Um, I found the twist to be very, some of the twists to be very genuinely surprising, which is, I, I think it's a tough feat for like a big theatrical release these days. Like usually either the trailer gives everything away or it's just so easy just because, we all see so many movies. It's very easy for us to kind of like pick up on where certain plot points are going to go and guess what direction the story is going to take and what maybe surprise might happen at what turn. I found side effects to be very enjoyable, maybe simply for the fact that it was unpredictable and it wasn't as preachy as I expected it to be. Um, I think it had to go over the top in some places to get unpredictable, but it worked because like, I didn't know it was coming. Um, and I liked that about the film more than I disliked any of the, the stretches it took. And even the over the top parts didn't bother me that much. It was, it was so well acted. Like the ensemble was so good that the movie was so well acted that even the tops that were like the parts that strained credibility were still enjoyable to me. It was still just a really it was a great thriller. I mean, it's it's just a very, very well done thriller, and I, I'd be hard pressed to find a tighter thriller this year than Side Effects. All right. Um, especially, com- well, okay, I'll just move on. Oh no, you um, can say what you were going to say. No, no, it, it's <laughs> it's a tangent we don't really have time for. Um, <laughs> so I, another film I want to mention is, and I know this is going to be a controversial prick, and I think Sam and Jordan are about to jump all over me, but uh, Spring Breakers was actually another one of my favorite films of the year. I thought it was absolutely visually striking, uh, disturbing on all the right levels, and undoubtedly the best performance I have ever seen James Franco give. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very different. I think it's one of those films I would highly recommend seeing in the theater because just being in the dark with a bunch of people who don't really know what they're getting into with this movie and having the almost obnoxiously high mixed dubstep along with the flashing neon colors with this group of some initiated, some uninitiated to what they're to expect from a Harmony Korine film was just such a wonderful experience to have uh, as I don't think it would be the same experience watching it at home in the living room with maybe just one or two people. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we really have an option to see it that way anymore. So um, I really enjoyed seeing it in the theaters. I, I, I like this movie a lot. I will defend it until the cows come home. Um, but you know, I, uh, I know I'm kind of in the minority on that. I agree with a lot of what you said about it. Um, it's definitely a very visually striking movie, and James Franco has never been better than he is in it. Um, I think it was a, a movie of moments for me. I feel like it was the it was the greatest music video of the year uh, that went on for 90 <laughs> minutes. So like, like in certain passages, I was like, this is a beautiful well done movie. I liked the themes it was getting at, but I actually think it was so effective at, at getting at some of the alienation and the disaffection that it was trying to strive for that I felt alienated and disaffected from the film itself, which is kind of the point, I think. Yeah, um, but that's, that's what I loved about it, and especially when it went into the darker territory towards the end. It's just like, I, I just, I genuinely didn't really know how I felt about any of the characters at any time, and I kind of loved that about it. All right. Um, and so I will end with my only 
real win of blockbuster season so far, uh, summer blockbuster summer season so far, which has been Iron Man three. Um, I mean, I, I thought that was, I think there was a lot to like about that movie, especially with the exploration of Tony Stark's PTSD. And um, I think some of the action sequences were really, really inventive, really exciting and really visually striking. Like even some of the ones that were sort of telegraphed by the trailers, I still found myself really excited for whenever they showed up in the film. So I, I have to give it for blockbuster season so far for me, the winner has been Iron Man three. Yeah, I think it's been a weak blockbuster season, but if if uh, gun to my head, I would definitely agree that Iron Man three is the stronger, uh, the strongest, I guess, of the blockbuster movies I've seen so far this year. Yeah. Um, I in preparation for this and and another thing that I'm working on, uh, I did a quick and dirty top ten of the year so far list, uh, like without any of the painstaking and without any of the usual torture that I go through to actually make my top ten list. So obviously anything I say is uh, fit to be changed completely by the end of the year and. Chances are it will be since the better half of the year for movies is coming. But my top three movies of the year so far, I'll talk about very briefly. Um, Upstream Color, if you have, I don't want to say anything about it because it's a movie you should go into knowing as little as possible. But if you've seen Shane Carruth's other film, Primer, um, this is his second film. Both movies are excellent in very different ways. Where Primer is is a phenomenal sci-fi script that is shot on a shoestring budget. Upstream color gives him a little bit more room visually uh, to play, and the cinematography is phenomenal. The The storyline is no less dense, but it's a lot more lyrical. Uh, I would say they're very different movies, but both of them are, are stellar and some of the best sci-fi that you'll see in the 21st century so far. So if you haven't seen Upstream Color, it definitely check it out. It's, it's, it's a trip. It's beautiful. It's well-written. It's well-acted. It's just a great movie. Um, Before Midnight... I definitely have to single out. This is, I think, maybe the only trilogy I can think of where it's arguable that every movie is better than the one before it. Um, I didn't after Before Sunrise. I didn't think that we needed it before Sunset. Before Sunset made me eat my words entirely, and by this point, I figured we definitely need uh, we definitely need another sequel, and I'm totally fine to see what happens in Before Midnight. But I was not disappointed again, seeing them nine years later, seeing how their relationship has evolved. And again, I won't spoil anything there for those of you who have not seen it yet. Um, but it's just, it's a great film. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy know their characters so well. Sorry. We've lost Sam and Ashley, but they're, uh, they're done with their piece. So they're going to go ahead and sign off for the evening. So I'll leave them there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Good to know. So Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy just have been with their characters so long and they feel so lived in at this point. I almost feel like I've known them for the 20 years that they've been making these movies. And, you know, I didn't see Before Sunrise when it was originally in theaters, but I have been waiting for nine years since Before Sunset to see them again. And it felt like having dinner with old friends and their problems were my problems and their joys were my joys. And it's a beautifully directed, beautifully acted film. And if you if you haven't seen Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, now is a great time to catch up. If you have, go back and rewatch them and then go see Before Midnight because it's it's one of the best films of the year so far. And I think maybe my favorite movie of the year so far is Mud. Um, it's it's the it's continuing the winning streak of Matthew McConaughey. It's um, 
bringing Jeff Nichols, the director of Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter, up. Really, I mean, he's made great movies in the past. Really, now he's a force to be reckoned with in my mind, and one of the one of the foremost directors that I'll be watching in years to come. Um, Mud is is a beautiful, dense film. It's sort of a Huck Finn riff uh, about adolescence and extended adolescence in some cases. Um, and it's just it's novelic in the way that it develops its characters and the way that it it uses motifs and and foils and plays with with the characters' perceptions and plays with the way that they evolve based on the events. Um, it's a beautiful, smart, uh, funny, sad movie. It's just. It's the perfect summer movie in terms of adolescence in the summer. It's one of the best films I've seen all year. It may be the best film I've seen so far this year. So if you haven't seen Mud, definitely check it out. Um, and with that, I guess we can wrap up the film section, Chris, and we can move on into comics, which Sam and Ashley will not uh, feel too bad about missing. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. Um, so uh, I tried to think a lot about how I wanted to handle this segment. Um, because there's a lot I want to talk about this year, but I, I think what I have to say first, and Jordan, you can disagree with me if you want to talk about any of these books so far, in that I think last year we said a lot of great things about Saga, Fatal, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Yeah. And all those things still apply. Those books are all still great for all the same reasons and are still just killing it week in and week out. Um... So I, I think I might focus on some different books for this segment. I agree. That sounds but like I, a great idea. Okay. I, but I just think it needs to be said that we're not ignoring these books. They are all still just as great. They are all still hefty contenders for my top 10 and for mine. list. Yeah, none but, of them has gone downhill. Um, and I'm sure we have plenty of things we could say about them. But we've talked a lot about them on the podcast in the past. So, yeah, I agree. Let's, we can talk about some new yeah. things. Th those books are all still great. You should all still be reading those because those are – four of our favorite books week in week out. And they're just so dependable that they're always great. But yeah, let's, let's talk about some different stuff sure. for 2013 because there's a lot to talk about. And I think the um, place I'd like to begin is with one of my favorite new creator owned series of the year. Uh, uh, Jonathan Hickman's new book from image East of West, which is a dystopian sci-fi Western about the four horsemen of the apocalypse rising to, uh, enact some sort of agenda on alternate history united well ununited states of america and we're only a few issues in so far but already i am extremely impressed by the world building of this book by the story that has been set in motion by the characters who although we don't know much about i'm extremely interested to follow on these journey and the just general tone and look of the book i think is something very unique in the current marketplace um, Jordan, you're reading this as well, right? Oh, yes. And it's, uh, I mean, one of the best books of the year, even though it has only sent uh, shaped three issues so far. It's, yeah, it's a spellbinding book. And I mean, I think also jaw dropping. It's, it's got a scope that's incredible, but it's got such good focus that I feel like I want to know everything about this world, but I'm so caught up in the narrative that it's already telling that I'll just get to it when, any, when Jonathan Hickman brings me there. Yeah, and, and Hickman especially known for his long-form plotting. Sometimes it, it's really hard to get invested in a Hickman book right from the beginning. But um, I, I haven't had that problem with East of West. Like instantly, like I, I really would be hard-pressed to tell you what's going on beyond the summary I gave you at the opening of this segment. 
Well, maybe I could add in a few more details, but like, to be honest with you, like, I don't really know what the large picture of this book is going to be, but I'm no less invested uh, just because this world he's formed just seems so fully formed and it's just so interesting. And I, I just love, uh, I, I love the art. Nick Dragota is just doing the work of his career on this book. Like, I, I mean, he was doing great work with Hickman on FF. But he's taken his art to a whole new game for this series. It's, and, yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful looking book. And Dragota's just, I mean, I think you, you just said it. He's doing the work of his career. I've never seen him do anything better. Um, and the the material matches so well. Yeah, the the character designs are just striking. I think the scenes of violence are just handled so well in that you, you only ever re- really see the aftermath of the violence. And it's just like the carnage that he shows you in this panels are just so horrific that the actual physical acts of violence are just left to the imagination and made so much worse because of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very impressive debut. Uh, I, I think I, I, I would, I would be surprised if by years end people aren't talking about East of West, the way they talk about saga. I think the book has just been that good from the get go for me. Yeah. This is one of those books that uh, I know I I say this a couple times a year. I think we talk about comics, but this is one of those books. If you're not reading comics, you should still pick up East of West. If you've never read a comic book before, you should pick up East of West. It's, it's one of the best stories being told in any medium at the moment. And I'm saying this, you know, it's three issues into what I imagine will be a lengthy story and an epic. Um, and it already has the feel of an epic and it already has the sweep and the scope. And it's just it's a beautiful, engrossing book that anyone should check out. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think I think that's a really nice niche that image has built itself for it. like something you just said a minute ago like that if you don't read comics read this you'll like that I, I think image specializes in that right now and that like if if superheroes don't interest you that's fine i think there's something in comics that you would like from image and i think east of west is a good place to start yeah if you're if you've never read a comic book before um and you're thinking about getting into it there are a lot of image books and i think we could probably do a whole segment and maybe chris you and i'll do a one-off uh podcast soon on image because we've done some DC and Marvel in the past. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a book for you out there. So if you're even thinking about reading it, but you have no interest in capes and tights, Image has a book that you will read and you will love. Um, and it might be East of West. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's one of my favorite iterations of the sci-fi Western since Firefly. So The fact that, the fact that we can already say uh, it in the same breath as Firefly, and I feel comfortable doing so as well, says a lot about how strong these three issues have been. Yeah, it's a book that when I see that it's an East of West week on my uh, shipping schedule, I'm excited. I'm excited about that more than anything else. Um, and it, I mean, I like a lot of books right now. Uh, I love a lot of books right now. And it's, I think, the thing that I'm most excited to see wh- where it goes next. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I, East of West, I think, will be very high on my list come year's end and just further proof that image is just really has their shit together right now and just really has a clear plan for the kind of publisher that they want to be. Um, moving on a little bit. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of Marvel books I want to talk about. So it, it's almost hard for me to pick out which uh, books to focus on because there, there's really just so many, I, I think the Marvel now uh, launch was just such an incredible success in positioning a lot of, creators on a lot of books they really wanted and giving me a lot of stuff that I 
I'm just enjoying Weekend and Wink Out. There's so many strong Marvel books. It's it was really hard for me to like narrow down some ones out some books I want to talk about this week. But um, I think I would like to start off with talking about a book that we have tried to get to a few times in the past, but have always kind of passed up due to time constraints. But I'd like to start with Thor, God of Thunder. Yes. Um, which I think was for me just further proves how impressive Jason Aaron is as a writer. Uh, I think more so than anyone else I can think of in comics, Jason Aaron is a guy that you really can't pigeonhole into one particular type of story. Jason Aaron just seems to be able to fall so comfortably into any type of genre, any type of tone, any type of length of story. Um, he, he's just, he just can do it all and can do it all so well. And I think you, you, when you look at like um, Wolverine and the X-Men versus Thor, God of Thunder, and it's just like it, th- this is the same guy doing both of these books. And, and they are two of my favorite Marvel books, and they couldn't be more different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Thor, God of Thunder, has, it, it's one of those rare series where like you and I talk a lot about like pacing in comics and like the long form stories that sort of great after a while. But Thor, God of Thunder is one of those stories that like we're nine, I think nine issues in right now. I think that's right. Yeah, and it we're still on the same story arc for nine issues, and the end isn't coming soon. And I'm I'm fine with that. I'm I'm loving this. I'm loving every moment of it. Um, I I love the aspect of it. Like the story that we're focusing on right now jumps around in time. Well, it was jumping around time, focusing on Thor in the past, Thor in the present, and Thor in the future. And we where we are in the story right now is the three Thors have traveled through time to the same moment in time where you have a team up between these three Thors against this uh, villain, Gore, the God Butcher, who's going around, who I think is a very compelling villain that Aaron has created. Absolutely. Um, And the, the art by Isad Ribic is just fits the series perfectly gorgeous. It, it, It feels epic. It feels like it almost doesn't really feel like a superhero comic. It feels like this really out there mythical Viking adventure and um, it, I, I think, is is something sort of unique among what Marvel is offering right now. But is just every week is very thrilling. It has a very unique sense of humor to it. Um, it's epic in its scope. Uh, it's wonderfully imaginative, and is really just positioning Thor as a must-read Marvel book, which is something that it hasn't been for a while. I mean, even under Fraction, which I really enjoyed, but I will admit that kind of never quite hit home in the way I was hoping it would. Um, Aaron's Thor has just been a must read book right from the get go. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's epic fantasy um, of the highest order. It's a, a, and art wise and story wise, it's a, it's a run that if it continues with this quality, I could see speaking of in the same breath as things like Sandman. Um, Not necessarily in terms of quality because Sandman is maybe my favorite thing ever uh, in comics, but yeah, but just in terms of the way that it deals with fantasy and the way that it gives an epic scope to something that deserves one, uh, you know, Thor is a god, and this book makes you feel it. And he's dealing with fantastical threats and fantasy elements, and this book roots you in them, and the art brings it all alive. It's it's one of the best books out there, and I'm glad you decided to talk about it because we haven't really had a chance yet. Um yeah, it, it's like similar to something Sam was saying with Mad Men earlier. It's just it's so good month after month. It's almost like you just you you sort of take it for granted after a while, and and you should because and again and also 
to a degree because it's sort of off in its own sort of corner, just doing its own thing. Um, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle of all the interconnected Avengers books, but that it, it should, that that's a shame to think of it that way because it, it is so, so good and something really special. And I think one of the things I like the most about it is that Aaron is just, it feels like he's really going for broke with this story. Like he's, he's presenting some really interesting questions regarding the nature of godhood in the fictional Marvel universe. And it's, it's questions with no easy answers. I don't think there's really like, I mean, even though Gore is a villain, I, I think his motivations are sympathetic and there's not really a clear cut right and wrong. I mean, there is to an extent, but there's like, it's, it's definitely a villain that you, it's definitely a classic Marvel villain in the sense that like the motivation is something that you can understand and appreciate and even sympathize with to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think Thor is a great book. Uh, moving on, Jordan, do you have anything in particular you want to, talk about you know i was actually gonna try to get us to talk about thor um so i'm glad you did that yeah um let me think briefly what are some books that i really need to discuss um i don't want yeah i i don't want to talk about the things that we've talked a lot about like you said i think i think you're right to sort of shift and let's talk about some new things i do want to i do want to highlight i don't think this is one of the best books out there right now but it's a book that you convinced me back into uh, when I was going to abandon it, and I'm glad you did, is Swamp Thing. Um, I'm glad you brought up Swamp Thing, yeah. It's, uh, after Scott Snyder, I was like, you know what? I've seen enough. I'm out. Uh, it was a great run, but it's going to be something different now. And it is something different now, but it's something different that I think may become great in its own way. I think that the issues we've seen so far are good, um, good enough that I will keep reading it, and they may very well become great. Yeah, I, I've been really impressed by the debut of, and I don't know how to say his name, so I apologize if he is listening to the podcast, as I'm, I'm sure, sure all comics writers are. Of course. Um, but Charles Soule has really impressed me with his debut on Swamp Thing. Um, I, I like the tone he's striking with it. It's still, it still has the horror roots, but there's a little more degree of whimsy to it. I get maybe that's not the right word I'm looking for here, but I kind of like there's a playfulness. Um, I agree. Yeah, there there is there is some of the darkness from Snyder's run is gone, which I thought would be a bad thing, but I'm actually kind of okay with. Uh, I sort of like the one and done quality to the series now, how we're mostly looking at standalone stories. Um and I like how they're connecting Swamp Thing to the greater DC universe a little bit more. I think the issue where he's talking with Superman, I think for me was the highlight of the series so far. I really liked Soul's take on Superman. I liked the dichotomy between Swamp Thing and Superman. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to like with that book. And um, I, I think it's it's worth mentioning because DC has had a hard time with um maintaining the momentum of a series once they lose the creators that launched it with the new 52 right. and i think swamp thing is one of the rare cases where there's been a handoff that's been pretty seamless and the book has remained as relevant as it was when it launched so good for dc good for charles soul I really like the book a lot, and I'm looking forward to continuing reading it. I do too. And if you if you did like I did and dropped it as soon as Snyder left, um, pick it back up. It's not the same book. It's doing something different, but it's doing something very interesting all the same. Yeah, yeah. I think it's 
it's it's definitely still worth reading. Um, another a series I'll mention right now, which I think you might actually disagree with me about, but I've actually really come along, around to in recent issues, has been Uncanny Avengers. Um, this was very much a slow start for me. I did not, I was not crazy about the first arc, but right around uh, issue five, uh, when uh, they introduced the full team and sort of had the slow down. Uh, this is the mission statement of the book. This is checking off all those team book related things like this is the headquarters this is the leader yada 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 blah 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 um the book really started singing for me and has especially just been really gaining traction in recent issues i like that they're picking up a lot of threads from uncanny x-force um i think reminder really has a really clear vision of the arcs for all of the characters in his book which is impressive because it's a really big cast he's dealing with right now i mean for him like he's used from what i've seen in his past books he's likes dealing with like three, four to five characters at a time. So you've got uh, nine characters in Uncanny Avengers, and I can really see like a clear arc for all of them. And I really like some of the questions that he's bringing up in this book and kind of finally starting to examine like why in the Marvel Universe being a mutant is so much different than being um, cosmically irradiated or bitten by a radioactive spider and why... um, and maybe the idea that the Avengers really have been falling down the job all these years and have really turned a blind eye to this, these allies and this other group of people that have just been persecuted under their watch and where it was just um, maybe within their power to do more and they just never did. So I, I've really been jo- enjoying each issue progressively more and more. Um, I'm still not sure that uh, Akuna is the perfect artist for this book, but I really like the work he's been doing on it thus far. Um, it's not quite as kinetic as I think this big action title needs to be, but the recent issues have been sort of very uh, talky, so I think his style definitely fits for that. Um, Jordan, have you been uh, keeping up with Uncanny Avengers? I have, yes. I'm a little less impressed than you are, as you mentioned. Um, I think it's been hit and miss, and some of the more recent issues have been more hit, but I'm still waiting for it to to uh, coalesce the way that Reminder's uh, Uncanny X-Force did, which was one of my favorite books for its entire run. Yeah. Um, um, I think it might get there. Uh, I think there are interesting things he's playing with, but I'm not invested in the entire team yet, um, and I'm not... I'm not convinced that this book can give it to me month in month in month out i think it's been too hit and miss so far um one more book i wanted to mention before i'm sure we have to wrap up in the next yeah. few minutes uh young avengers we talked about it briefly when we did our marvel now podcast but i think it's been consistently one of the best books of the relaunch i think it's um also doing something that you don't find in a lot of other places in comics kieran gillen is is one of the best writers working right now uh coming hot off his journey to mystery which is one of both of our favorite books of last year absolutely um, Young Avengers has a strong, unique tone, uh, a sense of whimsy, a great sense of humor, um, and immediately a great sense of all of its characters to the point that I'm not familiar with a whole lot of them um, going in, and I feel like I already know them based on this first arc. Which is especially impressive because a good half of this cast has been the sole purview of Alan Heinberg for most of their creations. So to have uh, Gillen come in and be so comfortable working with... um, Hulkling and Wiccan and girl hawk guy, as I like to call her, <laughs> um, it is very impressive. And I, I will say, I've said this before, I will say it again. There are certain combinations in comics that just really, really work. And Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, just every time they work together, they just fire on all cylinders. And 
I, I love how every issue there's just a very impressive action sequence that um, where Gillen just kind of steps back and lets McKelvey just kind of go crazy on for a little bit. Um, and it works every time. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's always different. It's always something new. It's always and very kinetic and original, like every single action sequence is yeah. laid out in a way that I, I find myself engrossed in ways. A lot of times the action sequences are something I find less interesting in comic books, but never in young Avengers. Yeah, yeah, Young Avengers, I think, is one of the best books at conveying action in new and exciting and visually striking ways. And it, I, I, I think for, I think it's one of the smartest books about teenage characters around. Like, usually, I think there's a real disconnect in comics that try to do teen comics. I think it's, it's very easy for 30, 40 year old writers to really not understand how to write young characters in a way that's believable but i don't i think kieran gillen is one of the best at doing this i think kieran gillen really remembers what it's like to be that age and really can convey universally relatable experiences of youth and like coming into the cusp of adulthood and it really comes across in this book and it's just really been entertaining right from the get-go and very weighty but fun at the same time absolutely um, uh, can we end with one more? Yeah, let's do one more real quick. Hawkeye. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, I hands down for me, this has been one of my favorite books of the year. Um, I think it's doing something that, I mean, I, I've very rarely, if ever, seen a mainstream comic book do before. Um, I, it's just such a beautifully simplistic premise, and the elegance is in that simplicity. This is what Hawkeye does on his day off from the Avengers. This is him just hanging around his apartment, getting into bad situations, making poor decisions, and just being the hero of the everyman. And again, it's a it's a, one of those very special fusions between a writer and an artist that just work especially well together. And um, yeah, I think it's a very unique book. It's very very compelling, and I think that's something. There's something to be said for how compelling a book that is about Hawkeye trying to set up his DVR on a Thursday is because that there was actually a part of an issue was like an issue open with Hawkeye trying to figure out how to set up his DVR. And it was compelling superhero comics. Yeah. And it's, it's again, I I think we were talking about earlier, like if you don't like the uh, capes and tights image has something for you, I think Hawkeye might also be for you if you don't like capes and tights, because I think Hawkeye is just a great, uh, a great work of pop culture, no matter what medium you're in. I agree. Uh, one of the best books out there right now and definitely worth your time. Yes. All right. And with that, I think we're going to uh, shift over to music and uh, bring Darren into the proceedings. So I want to start things off, Darren, for those for those of you who have listened to the podcast regularly throughout our entire run, Darren is our music editor at Review Be Named and an occasional guest star on the podcast. We like to bring around to talk about music uh, when we do music segments because some of the rest of us podcasters aren't as up to it and uh, expert on matters such as this as Darren. So, Darren, you're here to talk music. Why don't we kick things over to you to start off, uh, and we'll talk about some of your favorite music of 2013 and sort of take things from there and talk music for the year so far. Okay, uh, yeah, 2013 has been a really big year in music so far. So many bands I listen to regularly have come out with albums in 2013. I think I have about uh, 30 albums that I've acquired since the beginning of the year for 2013. 
And that's gonna make the uh, end of the year countdowns really tough. Um, there's been some really, really solid albums by old favorites of mine, and there's been some middle ground where I'm like, okay, well, I like this album. It's not groundbreaking. It's not great, but you know, the band hasn't lost a fan, and there's some that have just sucked. <laughs> so I guess to start, I'll talk about the albums that I really liked. Sure, it sounds um, great. So both Vampire Weekend and The National came out albums this year, and I was really impressed with both Trouble Will Find Me by The National and Modern Vampires of the City by Vampire Weekend. Have you, either of you guys listened to those albums? Yes. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard uh, Trouble Will Find Me. I haven't listened to the new Vampire Weekend's. So why don't we start with Trouble Will Find Me then, because all three of us uh, are familiar with that. Uh, Darren, what what, do you, what did you think of the album as a whole? Trouble Will Find Me, it was a great album. It, I mean, it was some of the tracks were the same nationally you, you knew and loved. Some things were new. There were a few tracks I didn't really think worked too much, but on tracks like um, the one I heard in the radio, the 12, the cat. Uh, sea of Love. Those tracks are really, really strong in my opinion, and they just kind of showcase what can happen when a band goes all out. And um, some of my favorite tracks also have that classic national sounds. Um, Don't swallow the cap does kind of have it, just the oh, and I'm gonna mumble, <laughs> and uh, Grace still has that sound. Then you have uh, Pink Rabbits, which was a little bit of an interesting jazzy tune. Um, a lot of the tracks kind of remind me a little of uh, High Violet, although they didn't have the, uh, the harmonizing that a few tracks in High Violet had. But I think it was most comparable to that album, even though there was a marked difference between the two. Sure. Sam, what, are, what were your thoughts on Trouble Will Find Me? Um, actually, I didn't really like it so much the first couple of listens, but it's it's proven to be an album that's grown on me a lot. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd say that I like it more than High Violet or Boxer, which I think are yeah, probably still better albums. My favorite. Um, yeah, I think Boxer is probably my favorite ultimately too. Though I really like High Violet also, but. This is an album that the first couple of times I listened, went through the album, I'm like, eh, it's okay. It sounds like The National. It is The National. But uh, it wasn't really setting my hair on fire. But uh, but now saw... you're setting your hair on fire? Well, they're starting to set my hair on fire. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely listening to the album a lot more. I saw them live, which was really great. Uh, um, and seeing them perform some of the songs off this album live, Maybe it just it sparked something in me, got me more interested in the album, and then I kind of gave it a closer listen, and I uh, I'm starting to like it a lot more. Yeah, I think I think this one is a bit of a grower. Um, we always sort of talk about the holy trinity of national albums: Alligator, Boxer, and High Violet. As like, I think each is probably a bit of a masterpiece in and of itself, and together they're like probably three of my favorite albums of the last ten years. Um, I don't know that Trouble Will Find Me is immediately. Uh, in that pantheon for me, uh, but it, it is a great album. Uh, there, are, there are definitely a lot of, of songs that I think will go in heavy rotation uh, on my national listening. 
Uh, I love I Should Live in Salt. I love um, I Need My Girl. Sea of Love is really good. As a whole, I feel like sometimes the album is a little – I don't know if long is the right word, but there's, there's a bit of a lull in the middle in the middle period of the album for me. Um, did anyone else feel yeah. that? Or have I just not grown uh, to love the some of the middle songs as much? There's definitely a few songs in the middle that are a little too minimalist. Like, and I know the national can do that very well. Like, the song "I Need My Girl" just has this, like that very sparse guitar part that really adds a ton to it. But then there's a few songs um, that are just very minimalist, like a few piano notes here and there, and they just kind of hold on the album's energy. I feel. Yeah, I and I, I I don't dislike you know I listen to I've listened to the whole album through probably like ten times now and I don't dislike the middle part by any stretch I'm not skipping around or anything but I do feel when I'm listening to the album it's like the first couple songs are really amazing uh you know you go I should live in salt probably through uh what probably through the fifth track Sea of Love um the album is just really really solid and then it's just it tapers yeah. off for me for a little while and I think I need my girl it starts to pick up and I really enjoy the back half of the album so it's like maybe two or three songs in there that I think are a little you know, just a bit samey for the for the middle portion of the album, I guess I would say. Um, which isn't so much a criticism, because like I said, I, I like even the songs that are a bit samey in it. And if I listen to them divorced from the album as a whole, I think they're just fine. But if we're talking about the flow of, of Trouble Will Find Me in terms of holistically as a complete album, I think it does have yeah. a bit of a lull in the middle. Why don't we, uh, Darren, shift gears for a minute and talk about... Uh, Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City. All right, uh, Modern Vampires of the City, it kind of is also like trouble upon me in that there's that, the sounds you expect, but also adds a new layer on top of that. Um, there's a whole lot of really dynamic tracks on it that, uh, you know, they still keep the whole world or Afrobeat thing that people always talk about with Vampire Weekend. And then there's a few more straightforward ones that are very pop, very accessible. I, I feel like it's kind of hard to really dislike Vampire, um, Vampire Weekend. Um, I mean, as a whole, I think I that mean, may be true. I, I felt their first album was okay. The second one never did anything for me at all. And I think Modern Vampires of the City is probably easily my favorite Vampire Weekend album of yet. Hmm. Yeah, I remember the first album I had. Like, to me, almost every track in the album is very solid. And then the second one, it was a pretty big change. It wasn't nearly as poppy. It had a lot more of the world influence. Um, that one really was a girl on me, the uh, Contra by Vampire Weekend, whereas the first one, it was more like, oh, yeah, this is great, right off the bat with songs like A-Punk and Mansard Group. And this one, it, I have to say, this is one more like the first, because songs like uh, Step, and Diane Young, um, Fingerback, really, really just got me into it right off, right off the bat. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is the album that to me was most immediately accessible. Uh, it, it sort of mixes, like you said, the Afrobeat stuff that Vampire, Me that Vampire Weekend has been doing uh, since the beginning with some more mainstream pop sounds that I think work. Mm. Um. Even, I mean, just from the opening track, Obvious Bicycle, I think this is an album that as soon as I started listening to it, I said, okay, like, I see what they're doing here. Um, yeah. That track kind of reminded me a little of uh, Horchata from Contra, just because it was a slow, the um, the vocal harmony and parts that kind of gave that 
you know, the Afrobeat sound. Although as soon as Unbelievers starts, that that just totally changes. That's such a good track, Unbelievers, by the way. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the, I think the album just has a really... Uh, we're, if we're talking about flow like we were for Trouble Will Find Me, I think it this one has a very solid flow in terms of there aren't too many lulls. It's almost actually the exact same length as Trouble Will Find Me. I think it's maybe five or ten minutes shorter than that album. But it doesn't have the, the lull. It sort of mixes in the, the fast and the slower songs and flows very well together, I think. Yeah, it definitely flows really well together with... Um... I mean, the first few tracks are all really, really solid. Um, towards the middle, the songs, in my opinion, they're not bad, but they're not the ones like, oh, I want to put on a song from Modern Vampires of the City, and I'll put on, I don't know, Hannah Hunt or something. Sure. But then, like, towards the end, it gets really strong again. Songs like uh, Yahe, Fingerback, Worship You. The only song that I wasn't really playing too much was Hudson. That was a little... I thought the track was a little dark for the album. And the last track, you know, it's kind of just a, an outro, so. Young Lion, that one. Yeah, um, so where do you think this ranks in Vampire Weekend albums for you? I would have to say, I still, the first one kind of has like a legendary place in my mind, so I'd say this one's probably my second favorite. Um, after the original, I. I I can see that, and I think, a lot of, I think a lot of uh, Vampire Weekend fans probably feel the same way. For someone who was never really crazy about self-titled um, and didn't like the second album at all, I think this is the first one that I said, okay, like th- I think it's offering me something here. Uh, yeah. So, if you haven't liked Vampire Weekend in the past, perhaps give Modern Vampires of the City a try, because I've never been a huge Vampire Weekend fan, and I liked it quite a lot. Yeah, that was... That's definitely an album that's going to be in my top 10 countdown for the year. So that you said that's got a solid place in the top 10 countdown? Oh, yeah. Both both Trouble Will Find Me and Vampire Weekend, I'm pretty sure, are going to make my, my top 10 countdown. And if not, I will delete everything I've written for a few to be named. <laughs> Mark my words. Uh, your words are marked. So when we do our year-end music podcast, and we'll have you back on the show, if, if we don't have you back on between now and then, I will certainly... Uh, keep in mind that Modern Vampires of the City and Trouble Will Find Me are going to be on your list, or we will have, you know, to summarily execute you on the show, I think. Okay. Um, other other big albums that you want to talk about, either liking or disliking for the from the first half of 2013? Uh, sure. So, Toro Imoa, this might be the first album I listened to in 2013. This album, I've gone back and listened to a whole bunch of times. It's hard to describe a genre for it. It's the album is called uh, Anything in Return. I had to think of it for a second. And a lot of people are like, oh, this is pop. Oh, it's R&B. Oh, it's hip-hop. Oh, it's electronic. And it kind of fits into the most bullshit genre of them all, Chill Wave, which is kind of chilled out electronic music. So basically it's great, easy listening and it, you know, it, it it's like a mellow electronic album, but with some aspects of R&B and hip hop thrown in, especially in the beats. Excellent. And so if that's kind of your scene, I would definitely give that one a listen. 
I would say it's kind of not my scene personally, but I'll probably check it out because I tend to listen to your recommendations. Um, I hear sounds that let us know we may have Sam back. Is that the case, Sam? I am back if you guys can hear me. We can. Yep. Huzzah! Hooray. It's good because I really have nothing to add about music. You Oh, you have all sorts of opinions. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I like music and there's music I don't like, but... I just like the things that I like, Jordan, goddammit. <laughs> well, we'll get to some of the things that you like that we haven't talked about yet in just a sec, Sam. Uh, once okay, we... well, I have no idea what you've talked about, so my original brilliant ideas might seem stale and boring. I think that would be hysterical. Um, and if we Well, spend... actually, I, I have a band I actually want to talk about, but Darren's probably already talked about them because they're cool and hip. Uh, I don't know that what he has, that? but what band Churches? is that? Churches? We haven't talked I about have Churches not... yet. No, I have not listened to Churches. Look at you, Sam. Jordan, have you listened to churches? I have, yes. Maybe I'm cool and hip. I'm not. I'm not cool or hip. I have a feeling when it comes to music, Jordan and I seem to be behind Darren. Yes, that's why we always have Darren on when we do music, because I'm like, I listened to this band called The Beatles the other day. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> Another hip new band. <laughs> They're going to be around for a long time. Yeah. I have They're a feeling these kids up. are going to make it. They will never break up. And man, if any of them die, as long as 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 long as the one that dies is Ringo. Yeah. So I'll long as Ringo that. dies first, we'll all be fine. Um, other Miracle other big albums for you, Darren, before we move on, Sam can talk about his hip church's love. Um, let me think. There was so if you like dance music at all, I recommend Empire of the Empire of the Sun's second album that came out pretty recently called Ice from the Dune. It's a lot more straightforward dance music than their first, and I always actually really enjoy it. Mostly because a lot of electronic albums I listen to, I'm like, I wish just, I wish just tried to be less experimental and just had a, a '90s trashy Euro beat into it, or Euro trashy beat, and that delivered. And I'm pretty sure I might be the only one in the East Coast of the United States that thinks this way, but it's a good <laughs> dance album. Well. Um, Good to yeah. know. A few other albums that came out this year that were good, but um, I'm still debating if they're going to make my top ten. Phoenix's new album, Bankrupt, there were some really strong tracks on that. Um, Camera Obscura's new album. Let's see. Devenger Banhart. Uh, I have, I've been listening to him for a while, and his new album actually really impressed me. And as always, his songs in Spanish are the best. Uh, a lot of the albums I've listened to this year... They have a, a couple to maybe five really good tracks, but then the rest of this uh, about. Like the newest Foles album definitely fits that bill. Um, yeah, that was one that didn't really light me on fire. <laughs> yeah. Holy fire. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I'm so close that way. For all the hype about Daft Punk's new album, I like it, but I don't think it's, you know best thing ever that some people have been making it out Yeah, but I feel like I always think that about Daft Punk albums, so maybe it's just me. Yeah. I mean, I liked it, and there were some really great tracks, but there were a few other tracks where I'm like, eh, it's two French dudes doing folk order. <laughs> um, I, if we're going to talk Daft Punk, I have to say, Touch, the one that involves a uh, cameo from Paul Williams, was the standout for that album for me, definitely. I really like the uh, moment on a track when it kind of just turns into a piano part and sounds very show to me almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul Williams just does, A, like, obviously great show tunes, um, and 
his piano stuff is really interesting. So I'm a fan. Uh, and I think generally the Daft Punk uh, songs I liked more on the album were the ones with artists I was already sort of familiar with and, and appreciated. And I think that Daft Punk did a great job of, of bringing these people into the album and bringing them into the feel of what they were trying to do. But I think I probably connected most with um, the artists that I was already familiar with. Uh, I enjoyed Julian Casablancas's track. Both that the, was my favorite on the album. I think it's a really good one. Um, the Feral ones are fine. I'm, I'm not all that familiar with his stuff outside of, you know, I hear it here and there. Get Lucky is, yeah. I guess, like one of these songs of the summer, as my mother keeps informing me whenever I talk to her. Uh, so apparently you're supposed to love that one. I think it's good. It's catchy. But yeah. my uh, my trenchant Daft Punk criticism is the same that it's been since 2001, uh, which is I like Daft Punk, but all of their songs are one to three minutes too long. I could definitely see that. Like, um, especially the ones that don't, I feel like the ones with the guest stars on this one were the best, whereas, you know, the other ones, the ones that were just Daft Punk themselves were lagging a little. Yeah, and especially considering how long it's been since their last album, it felt like Daft Punk really maybe should have had more to give than they did, I guess. But I, again, I'm not really that invested in Daft Punk as like masterpiece uh, makers. You know, I think I think they make fine dance music. I tend to think it's too long, uh, but that's kind of something I think about a lot of dance music. Yeah, dance music kind of needs to be long, so For yeah, you can dance to it. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But, like, I, I mean, Touch is my favorite song in the album and also the longest song in the album. So that's not always – or second longest, actually. Uh, Giorgio is longer, I think. Um, yeah. But, like, in that – Paul Williams, Jordan. Right. We'll, we were talking about that when we think – I think we lost you again briefly. Um, that's easily my favorite on the album, and I think it's because of Paul Williams' influence. But, like, it, that shows that the length is not always a problem. Um, but on a track like Get Lucky, which I also really enjoy, I'm like, great, but – I could use this chorus for maybe four minutes, um, and it's like six and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah like, and lose yourself to dance. I was like, I don't know. I wasn't as big a fan of that one. It's get lucky. I feel like Daft Punk is like really great as in terms of passive listening. It's really yeah. great to kind of just have playing on when, say, I don't know, you're like surfing the internet or something, or doing something else, or dancing, say. <laughs> but like, as I, like if, if, I feel like say the national or something you can like just sit down and just listen to that album and just concentrate on that i feel like it'll it would kind of get frustrating and repetitive if you do that with a daft punk album. and i guess that's my that may be my problem because i usually when i'm listening to new music i do try to just be doing that or you know i'll listen to it while i'm driving and concentrate on the music um because i don't pay attention to where i'm going um <laughs> And try I, listening to just Daft Punk. Try just going on. I don't know. I don't know if you go on Reddit or if you're just browsing uh, Twitter or the, the Facebooks, I, whatever I, social I media. I waste plenty of time use. on Twitter, so I'll next yeah, time. Yeah, porn. Daft Punk has a porn uh, background. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Good to nice know. Beat. Yeah. <laughs> nice beat while you beat. Yeah. Thank you, Jordan, for taking it there. I made the pun. Disgusting disgusting yeah i t i took it to a weird place it was definitely me and not you in the okay. in the annals of the review named uh podcast oh, God, historians George. look back on this Stop, episode they will vindicate me and say that it was you that took us to a weird dark place first not me um 
All right. History will judge. Just yeah. as history will decide that George W. Bush was our greatest president. <laughs> and that Jimmy Carter is history's greatest monster. Of course. Building houses. Um, so you wanted to talk about ch- churches, Sam. Sure. I'll talk about it quickly because uh, I can lose Internet again at any moment. So if I stop talking about churches, it's not because I've stroked out. Or it is because you struck out. We'll assume you're dead. And it could very well be. The Sam Lindauer Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week, but probably yeah. won't. Um, that's uh, churches with a V instead of a U, so you can Google them, which is kind of a, a clever idea on their part. Because if you try just Googling churches, you're gonna find a lot of you're gonna wait through a lot of boring shit uh, before finding them. Um, they are a Scottish electronic band who who have been releasing kind of, they've been trickling out uh, singles over, I guess they started, they released a single last year, but they still haven't released a a proper album yet. They just released an EP, which I highly recommend people checking out. I think they're insanely catchy and they kind of, they do a great job with this, uh, this new synth wave we're having. The eighties are cool again. And they're kind of taking taking the best parts of that, I think, making really good pop music. And I always love Scottish people singing. I think it sounds good. That it does. Sounds right up my alley. Um, yeah, speaking Scottish, of Scottish people and singing, synthesizers, yeah. Speaking of Scottish people singing, I think now is as good a time as any to bring up uh, what is probably my favorite album of the year, Frightened Rabbits, Pedestrian Verse. Yeah, it's probably my favorite album, too. Um, I think that all I listen to is like three. I think I've listened to Churches, The National, and uh, Frightened Rabbit this year. I I've listened to a, a whole lot. I I think my uh, my album playlist or my playlist from 2013 so far is like 30 hours long already. Um, and this is the thing that I listen to more than anything else. I think I've listened to this album probably like 25 times at least. Yeah, I usually have you know, I go back and forth on what my favorite band of the moment is between Frightened Rabbit and, and the National. And they are always one and one A in some order that keeps changing. Um, I think this year Frightened Rabbit has the better album. The, I mean, the difference is I was pretty much immediately hooked to um, Pedestrian Verse the first time I listened to it, which, I mean, I, I had to like work a little bit more with um, Trouble with Find Me. But this is just... Brighton Rap has been on a roll. And I mean, it's, it's, they've spec- released three amazing albums right in a row. Kind of like the national. Yeah. This but is, I guess, I mean, uh, but this is, th- this is part of their golden age, I would say. Um, whereas maybe trouble will find me is, is a postscript after three phenomenal albums. Although sure. I like to find me more, more, the more that I listen to it. So talk to me in six months when I'm making my year end list and I may rank it up there right along with, uh, the Holy Trinity of national albums. Uh, but I usually even I like I've loved Frightened Rabbits, every Frightened Rabbit album. Um, but I usually take a little bit more time to love them as much as I love Pedestrian Verse the first time through. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like we've talked a lot about like, well, I didn't like it and it's grown on me. So it's not necessarily as good, which I don't think is true at all. But Backyard Skulls from the moment that song, the opening track on Pedestrian Verse starts, I'm like in. And every single time that album just like carries me through the whole thing. Uh, and I just, I loved it. I loved it pretty immediately and I haven't stopped yet. And I, I may even appreciate it more 
now than I did even a couple of weeks ago. So it's it's continued to grow and expand. Um, but that was one I loved from the start. Uh, big album that I definitely think we should touch on before we shift from music is um, David Bowie's The Next Day. Uh, did either of you listen to this? No, I did not. Sam, did you check out the new Bowie? Sam silence means that he's probably gone, possibly dead. Um, yeah, uh... As music editor, I think I should require you to check out Bowie because it's David Bowie. Um, and, you know, he hasn't released an album in 10 years before this. It was thought after reality and after his reti- announced retirement, after, after he announced his retirement from playing live in the wake of reality, his 2003 album, it looked like we may never get more Bowie again. Um, so when it was announced that the next day was coming out in uh, February, I thought that, you know, like this was like, it was like Christmas in February, basically. Like one of my favorite artists of all time, who I thought I would never hear from again, was releasing a new album. And the next day didn't disappoint. It's it's a, a phenomenally interesting musical statement. It's it's dancey, it's funky, it it sounds like the best of Bowie and Vintage Talking Heads. Um, How does his voice sound over the years? Because I know that a lot of musicians, you know, especially as they get really older, their voice really changes. His hasn't really. I mean, like there, I think there are more layers to his voice. Than there were before. Um, but I don't think it's really changed the dimensions of it. I think... I think Bowie is still Bowie at the end of the day, and this is not this is not a postscript to a career uh, that's legendary. I think the next day is an album that can stand alongside Bowie's body of work um, and above a lot of even like his middle albums in his career. I think I think the next day, hopefully Bowie will follow up and continue making music now that he's back on the scene after a ten year period. But if the next day did prove to be his last album, I think it would stand. Uh, as a uh, fascinating end to his career, and it's an excellent one. Hmm. I'll have to give it a listen. David Bowie. Um, yeah, I would definitely check it out. It's, I mean, from the 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 title track, which opens the album, uh, his song "The Stars Are Out Tonight," which is probably my favorite on the album. Uh, "Where Are We Now" is amazing. How does the green grass or has the grass grow rather? Um, it's just, it's a really good, really, really fascinating album, and something you wouldn't you would necessarily expect from an artist who's been around for you know over forty years. Ziggy Stardust, which is arguably his fav- his best album, uh, came out you know forty one years ago this year, and he released oh, wow. an album that is that is you know one of my favorites of the year this year as well, forty one years later. So good for him, great album. You should check that out. Um, what did you think of the Strokes' new album? Uh, Countdown Machine, I was kind of torn on. I it didn't really win me over, honestly. And maybe as a statement of that, I I don't remember much about it at all. I don't think I've listened to it since I wrote the review of it. So, um, I mean, I think there were some tracks on it, but the only tracks I recall really liking on it were the ones that sounded like classic stroke sound. Like, uh, all of the time, um, 80s come down machine, but then, uh, I don't know, the, 
one-way trigger chances as I can. See, I actually I expected uh, to dislike it when I was reading about things in advance of the album's release, based solely on the fact that they said this is not your standard Strokes album. This is a very different feel than your usual Strokes. Um, and I think that's true. And the Strokes are a band that I, I would not have been sure as a fan I would like to see evolve. There are some bands who I always like to see doing new and different things. Um, some artists, David Bowie is a perfect example since we just talked with him. Bowie changed everything that he was doing pretty much every three to five years throughout his career. And I, I mean, wasn't alive for a lot of it, let's be clear. But as a fan, I love every era of Bowie for something. Even the stuff when he was not making necessarily great music all the time. There's something interesting about every era of Bowie's music, and I love his evolutions. And there are a lot of bands that I think change and transmogrify over time in ways that are interesting and that I love. Uh, the Strokes are a band I wouldn't really expect that from. I've liked... I liked all of their albums prior to this, um, but I liked them mostly for the central stroke sound. And Come Down yeah. Machine does not really have that. I never really got into Angles, honestly, and I think that's the reason why. And see, I thought Angles, right. Angles uh, which is sort of, I think, got, has the reputation as the new wave strokes album, and it does have some of that feel to it. I think Angles has like some of the best stroke songs, period. Taken for a Fool uh is is vintage strokes to me and i mean if i were if i were curating a best of the strokes uh list that would be on there so i i think angles gets a bad rap and i actually think come down machine is getting a bad rap because it is different um and i went into it thinking well it's going to be different and i'm not going to like it as much i actually think it's an album well worth anyone's time whether they're a strokes fan or not um i think some of the new things they're doing uh Specifically, I think 50-50 and Slow Animals are two tracks that are very different than what we usually expect from The Strokes. Call It Fate, Call It Karma, the last song on the album, is definitely different. Um, and yet they're all, I think, really worthwhile songs, really uh, inventive, and, inventive and interesting. So it's different than uh, The Strokes, and don't be afraid of that necessarily, because I loved it. Huh. I, I remember in my review, I called it a very divisive album, and I think that's definitely the case. Like, those last tracks in it that were kind of different, I was just like, uh, no, I, I do not like this in my strokes. Yeah, I definitely I think, see that. I think maybe it's because I am one of those people that is like, oh, I'm going to listen to the strokes. I'm going to listen to your Julian Casablanca's having a distorted voice and, you know, repetitive guitar riffs. And well, some of the stuff that they've done that Brent Schaff and that has worked really well, but other stuff in the kind of is just too out there for what I'm expecting. I think, honestly, The Strokes is one of two or three, like, vintage rock bands that we have going on right now. Like, if, I, if I'm if i talking about rock and roll music and whether it's alive in the 21st century, The Strokes are one of the few bands I mention. And I don't think Come Down Machine works as a, as a rock album in the way that a lot of their other albums do. Um, so in that sense, if you're a fan of the Strokes as a rock band and you like them because you consider them rock and roll, which some people would call me crazy and say, no, they're too alternative. But if you consider the Strokes one of the foremost 21st century rock and roll bands, as I do, um, and that's all you want from them, Come Down Machine is not the album for you. It's it's different stuff. Um, but I think not different necessarily in a bad way. And I think it may or may not, it, you know, it may become a, an aberration in their career they may go back to doing what, what we think of as the strokes and they may move forward in interesting directions but now i consider the strokes a band that can do something outside of their wheelhouse without destroying my uh respect for them so good for them um i think 
those cover most of the big albums that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I can definitely throw, I'd like to throw mentions out of other albums I've loved so far this year. Uh, Tegan and Sarah's okay. Heartthrob. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was an excellent sort of pop album, um, which is not something I get all that often. There's a pop album that really connects with me. Uh, and I love that album. Um, I've loved Kurt Vile's Walking on a Pretty Day. Is just I'm a big fan of Kurt Vile's. His last album was one of my favorites of 2011. Um, Walking on a Pretty Day does not disappoint. I think uh, we've already briefly mentioned Phoenix, which I think is kind of a hit and miss album, but has some really great stuff yeah. in it. Um, and I want to talk about Portugal the Man's Evil Friends very briefly and say okay. I, I am sort of a, a an advocate for this band now in ways that um, I thought I thought Portugal the Man had one of the best albums of 2011 with In the Mountain and the Cloud. It was on my it was high on my top ten list. They were a band that I I'd liked before, and I I like virtually all their albums on some level in the mountain and the cloud is probably still my favorite, but where a lot of their stuff before was solid music that I'm going to listen to and then sort of cycle back into my, my shuffle or back into albums that I'll see from time to time, but not listen to all that often in the mountain and the cloud. And now it's follow up this year's evil friends, uh, are albums that will be in heavy rotation for me for years to come. I think, uh, evil friends is, is a very, very solid follow up. It does very different things where in the mountain and the cloud played up, sort of the psychedelic vibe of uh, Portugal the Man. Evil Friends takes on a bit more of blues, and it's, it's still got the psychedelic elements, but it's a bit bluesier. It's produced by Danger Mouse, and he does a lot of the things that he does with the Black Keys here. So you get a bit of a Black Keys vibe from time to time without ever really losing the central Portugal the Man psychedelic feel. So if you're interested in Portugal the Man at all, if you like the Black Keys and want to check out something that's not really on the same wavelength, but does some similar things and plays with blues in similar ways, I would check out that album. Hmm. I'll figure it will listen. Because I've always heard very good things about Portugal the Man. They're a band that I've been meaning to check out for a while. So I'll figure if you think that's a good album to start with. Or... I, I would say if you want to listen to their best album, the one that's most representative, start with In the Mountain in the Cloud uh, from 2011. That's the one that 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 album had the same effect that Frightened Rabbit's Pedestrian's Verse is having on me this year, in that once I heard it, I never stopped listening to it throughout the entire year. Um, and it's just and it's perfect now because you're in the summer months. It's a perfect summer album for like sitting outside or walking around, um, just enjoying the summer weather. I love that album to death, um, and I think that's more representative of the way they play with psychedelia uh, in a modern sense. Evil Friends though is sort of the the dark side of in the mountain in the clouds experiment and it still has that psychedelic vibe but it plays with blues and rock in a lot more interesting ways so i would say check out both of those albums and um you may find that you become a fan of portugal the man very quickly give them a listen all right and with that i think uh we can probably wrap up our music discussion all right all right well with that we'll wrap up the show uh thanks for listening We'll be back next week with more from the world of pop culture. So talk to you then. Have a good week.